the postponed 17th Venice Architecture Biennale asked its 112 participants to consider the question, how will we live together? A question originally posed in 2019 by curator and architect Hashim Sarkis, far before our collective 2020 experience. He originally asked participants to imagine spaces in which we can generously live together. Answers from 46 countries materialized into the exhibition of 2021. After a year spent living apart, the theme is both hauntingly fitting and reifies our disconnection. This is Alexandra Sievendal, and I'm excited to be back with a special two-part Designing the City episode covering the long-awaited event. It has signaled something, a community eager to reconnect and a deeper understanding of just how interwoven we are with our spaces, spanning the full spectrum of the human experience. The exhibition explores that spectrum across five scales. Among diverse beings, as new households, as emerging communities, across borders, and as one planet. Resite got the opportunity to attend the preview to speak with some of this year's contributors on site. In this episode, we'll hear from U.S. Pavilion curators, Paul Anderson and Paul Preisner, exhibitors Lucas Feireis and Leopold Banchini, Luxembourg's curator, Sarah Noel Costa de Arajo, and finally, exhibitors for the Nordic Pavilion, Siv Helen Strangland and Reinhard Kropf all whose work shares a common thread, wood. These wood-based installations make cases for their egalitarian and democratic nature. They offer a particular simplicity, humility, flexibility, and familiarity, coupled with considerate retrospectives, to not only answer the pressing question, how will we live together, but how will we thrive together? Don't forget that with every episode, we feature a published transcript and images of the projects discussed available at resite.org slash podcasts, and can also be found in the show description. Practical, banal, and cheap. Descriptors often used when speaking about wood as a building material. Architects Paul Anderson and Paul Preissner curators of the U.S. Pavilion, invite us to re-examine humble softwoods and their place as the literal bones for American homes in their exhibition entitled American Framing. Relatively uncommon throughout the world, Paul and Paul are quick to note that over 90% of the houses constructed in the United States are wood-framed. While there is undoubtedly a sameness and certain banality to the style, the curators stress its accessibility. It is with this one material that a diversity of structures are made, and yet it is architecture that is widely overlooked. They pose it that it is a representation of democratic values, egalitarianism, and pragmatism. As softwood is cheap, and offers opportunities for structural improvisation. The installation itself is unmissable within the Giardini. The curators attached a three-story tall structure to the outside of the U.S. pavilion, providing a striking juxtaposition given the humble nature of wood framing and the monumental statement it's making. I spoke with the both of them just outside the Giardini in Venice during the opening weekend. Would you mind introducing yourselves? Uh, my name is Paul Anderson. I'm one of the curators. I have a, uh, an office in Denver and I teach at UIC, uh, University of Illinois, Chicago, and where a lot of the people, including Paul Preisner, um, are also working and teaching. The, the, a lot of the people that work, we work together on the pavilion. So uh, it's a pleasure. 
Hi, I'm Paul Preisner. I'm also faculty at the University of Illinois at Chicago and have a, my own architecture practice there as well. And how did the both of you connect and start working together? Because I've seen you've collaborated on other projects, if uh, that's yeah. correct. Yeah, we've, I guess we've worked together since 2014 or so, 13, 14, five or six or so years ago. We met uh, at the university um, teaching together. So I started there in 2007 and Paul started a little bit later and we met at the school. So we've started, I guess, I, you know, we, we kind of maintain our own independent practices and, and have come together to work on installation projects for art exhibitions or architecture exhibitions. I mean, I think uh, a, lot of this, a lot of things that, that we've tried to set up here in Venice are an extension of that work. Uh, you know, like all of the projects that, that we've done together have been, four exhibitions have been um, like full-scale constructions of some kind, sometimes they're inside, sometimes they're outside, using different materials. But generally the materials that we choose are common, ordinary materials, nothing like that's super technologically advanced or exotic, and more things that, that most people probably recognize and can relate to in some way, but then trying to set it up or design a way of using them that, that um, isn't quite so familiar and maybe allows them to, to see those materials and maybe uh, the built world a little bit differently. That's fantastic. Okay, so maybe tell us a little bit about this idea of framing, kind of as a starting point. You mentioned it's for, you know, uh, more for research and discourse, less than looking at what's been done in the past. Yeah, so I mean, I think it, I think it, it came from looking at the overall history, not a kind of specific one, but uh, American Framing is, is the title of the exhibition, and it's more of a kind of topic show or a subject show looking at American architecture, not American architects. Um, and, and the title, in a way, kind of works both literally in the sense that it's, it is the framing that happens within America and accounts for over 90% of domestic construction in the U.S., uh, but it's also kind of metaphorical or speaks to a particular cultural ethos of America, one that is a little bit more bored with tradition and kind of prioritizes or privileges expediency and kind of utility or usage over... Uh, I get more delicate or more slower forms of craft and precision. So what is the question of how will we live together mean to you as designers, as curators? Yeah, we. I, it's interesting because the artistic direction, because of the schedule of award of the grant to produce the U.S. Pavilion, the artistic direction came after we had already developed the project, submitted it, and, and found out. So uh, in that sense, it wasn't a conscious and direct response to the question asked by Hashim, um, how do we live together? But, but nonetheless, I think it has kind of, you know, the quick answer, we'll live together in wood framing because that's what we do. Uh, but we'll also live together in kind of a, a, a more wily uh, domestic type that kind of explores new forms of creativity based in normalcy uh, as opposed to the exotic. You also mentioned that um, the style of framing is rooted in equality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so, so it, it developed in the early 19th century and it came kind of from the need for an enormous amount of housing as the American population was expanding. Uh, a lot of the immigrants within the Midwest where it started were from Scandinavia, Germany, and came from those traditions of heavy timber framing, stone stonework, much slower, more elaborate forms of construction. Uh, but the population just didn't have access to the kind of educated skill 
the tools necessary to do that. Uh, and, and also the region just wasn't populated with the same types of wood. Um, so the Midwest, Michigan, Wisconsin, Illinois had a much cheaper kind of disregarded form of wood, softwood. Uh, the trees grew fast and as such, they splinter, they're not as strong. Uh, you can't, you know, uh, it, so it wasn't used for the way things were built with elaborate joints, carved joinery and stuff. Um, so it kind of developed in a, as a really quick, easy way to use wood that you wouldn't like by instead of just using less things to produce the, you know, the structural load of the house, they just use lots of them. So instead of four columns to hold up a house, you had 80 or such, and they were all these small studs. And by using a lot of really small, cheap pieces of wood and nails, just nailing boards into boards instead of trying to slot them in, it, it started to produce a kind of architecture that had its own grammar, uh, its own informality, but still produced a kind of domesticity. Yeah, and it was very, like, for, the, for all those reasons, because it was easy to, to work with and because it, the wood was plentiful so that, and, and inexpensive, it was something that everybody could, could use. And, um, and that is still true. So, you know, today, over 90% of homes in the U.S. are, you know, like Paul mentioned, are, are built with wood framing. But it's all the same framing. So no matter how much money you have, you can't buy a better 2 by 4 than the one that your neighbor has. So there is a kind of a quality, I think, in that that is, you know, interesting and maybe works on some ideological levels, but also in, for design opens up a lot of possibilities um, that, uh, you know, maybe other construction systems don't allow for. And I think, you know, yeah, the, like the improvisation, the the quirkiness, the ease of like, you know, experimentation and change on the fly, you know, those are all things that, that are, uh, you know, part of that, you know, that ethos of, you know, a kind of like egalitarian system that's like, like cheap and quick and, and, and easy. And you already touched on this maybe a little bit, but you know, why, why do you feel it's so uniquely American? I mean, I think, uh, yeah, I think the, there is the, the very direct literal answer to that, which is that we build primarily out of wood framing, whereas, and, you know, there, there's quite a bit of it in Canada also, but outside of North America, there are examples of it, but, you know, at least when it comes to, like, stick-built, lightweight, softwood framing, there's not a whole lot of it around the world. Um, it tends to be more of an exception or a, an anomaly in most places than the than the standard way to work. So it is like very straightforwardly like an American way to build that for whatever reason is not, or for lots of reasons is not the, the way to build in other places. Um, and I think maybe like that, both that kind of like egalitarian sense of it's all sort of the same stuff for everyone, no matter what they're building, no matter what type of building, no matter how expensive, um, that's, that's seems to be quite American. And then there's the, like the, you know, the kind of like anti-tradition part of it, which comes in in a lot of ways in through artistic practices, but also, you know, we tend to think of architecture as being stable and permanent and heavy. It's, you know, wood framing is lightweight, kind of flimsy. Um, you know, it, it it's not, there's always been skeptics about, you know, who, who've questioned whether or not it's a good system for building in because is it durable and is it going to last? And, but out of that has come, I think, some very, like, uh, 
you know, some American cultural practices that, that have embraced that fluidity. And, you know, for example, the idea that you would, you know, just move a wall in a house or change the location of a window or add a skylight or something like that is, is you know, something, it, it's really, really easy with wood framing. It's not so easy if you have a, you know, something, a building built in concrete or steel or masonry. So, you know, there, I think that that, you know, that sort of sense that things are not permanent, that they're shifting, that they're, they can always be new, they can always be different, always be changed, um, seems to jive with, with a, you know, American life. Uh, too. Why do you feel the style is often overlooked? Um, one thing I really liked is that you, you know, seem to be really interested in maybe the more plain and simple and, and humble uh, practices of architecture. Um, but, you know, when you walk up to your the pavilion, there is like, you know, a, quite a statement uh, structure that you uh, installed. And I think that's quite powerful, um, you know, just commentary and the humbleness of it, but with like a yeah. very resting... I mean, I think, I, th I think it, it's it's overlooked in the sense that it's it's uh, everybody knows about it. Uh, over ninety percent of the homes are built by it, so it's overlooked in a kind of intellectual sense, or overlooked as as a as a way of producing architecture that's open for new forms of creativity or expression. In a sense, uh, it's it's utterly normal and 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 therefore gets disregarded as something worth. Uh, spending time on either mm -hmm. intellectually or creatively uh, in a sense and I think Paul and I have always one thing we've done when we've worked together is always try and and work with anonymous histories or anonymous materials things that are vaguely familiar that you grew up with and you know and you see it everywhere because it and you see it anywhere uh, but to try and produce n new form of profundity with with those methods in a sense so uh, we think it is profound and it's consequential and it's big, but it's also done in a way that is a little bit uh, disarming because it's it's familiar and approachable and you understand it, but it's also utterly new simultaneously. And that kind of, I guess, conflict of emotions or responses or experiences we think is a little bit more special uh, and consequential than to produce something immediately exotic that you're then trying to normalize. Like we're doing the inverse, which is to take the normal and kind of make it weird. Building on that a little bit, I, I read your interview with Kate Wagner actually spoke at one of our, conf our last yeah, conference. Really appreciate her work. Um, but it was the interview for Arc Daily and you, you discussed with her some of like the urban suburban divide and how a lot of what people find distasteful about the suburbs you find fascinating. Yeah, of course, I mean, I think I think again, it, you know, the the suburbs, the suburbs get uh, demeaned within a higher level of architectural discourse or something. It's it's considered tasteless, tacky, uh, in the interests of people with no idea of what proper you know architecture is. Um, and and I think what has always been, you know, or, or what's interesting to Paul and I about the suburbs is that. Uh, within that tackiness or within that tastelessness also is an enormous amount of weirdness and kind of creative choices that are made uh, that aren't orthodox choices in a sense, right? And so I think that type of, of unorthodox nature of formal expression or organizing a plan, uh, you know, the, the, the house plans for suburban developments are really weird in ways too, because a lot of them are just willful uh, or sometimes overly excessive or just organized in ways that, that 
you wouldn't do it with other forms of construction. You can do it because it's wood framing. So I, I think we kind of like that that out of fashionable weirdness that exists and feel that that's a kind of, uh, I don't know, form of creative expression too that is, is enormously valid and actually produces something, I don't know, much more consequential uh, in a way, so. Yeah, I mean, no, I totally agree with that. And, and I think um, there, are, there are a lot of reasons why, why the suburbs are worth taking a look at or spending a little bit of time on. Um, and for sure, like one of the main, main reasons is, is what Paul said, that there's a kind of like, you know, like a low or pop culture uh, um, development of ideas and forms and organizations there that's, that can be really fascinating and, and is, can be actually like very rich if you, if you are patient and look close enough and don't dismiss things so quickly. I was just reminded of a conversation from a couple of years ago that I haven't thought of in a long time with a guy named Bob Brugman, who's like a, 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 an amazing historian, also based at UIC and like a very much like a provocative person too, who you know, goes against the grain in some really interesting ways a lot of times. And we were having a, a casual conversation one day and he happened to mention that um, like a lot of the architecture that he was, that he was seeing that's, that's avant-garde or, and, or was at the time. So for example, some of the, the Liebskin buildings were basically the same as like uh, McMansions, you know, that they were, they were both aggregations of self-similar parts. Like it was just like, it was just that the parts were a little bit different. They were a little bit different form or something, but they were all kind of like, you know, this, the same parts just you know, like repeated and, and kind of like clawed together in some way that, and, that correspondence was amazing. I had, I had never thought of that. You know, I thought of those those worlds as being so far apart, and and people really would like at that time would take a stand, like everybody for the for the you know the the kind of architecture the Leibskin was was doing, but not ever definitely for the for the McMansion. And it and it you know even it made me realize that you know first of all. Uh, all of these preferences are, are cultivated and cultured and, you know, biased, but also that maybe, you know, that you can't dismiss the suburbs as being like uniform and always one thing and always, uh, you know, abhorrent and that actually you should look closer because they are different. Like, you know, houses are different from different eras and different places. And yeah, absolutely. There's some very interesting things there that go against the, you know, the unwritten rules of contemporary and traditional architectural design. So uh, what will become of the structure once um, once you dismantle it? Do you have plans to sort of uh, reuse the materials in, in some way or readopt? Yeah, so we, we, we don't have anything definitive as to what will happen. Uh, and we're in conversations with a couple of different people right now who want to ab absorb the structure and repurpose it either in the way it is now or in some kind of reassembly. But uh, so it won't just be burned oh, um, in a sense or just thrown into the lagoon, uh, but but we'll find a home somewhere else in some kind of configuration. That's great. Yeah, it seems to be a, a kind of a theme at a lot of installations that we've seen is actually using this timber installations. Um, have you seen some of the other pavilions? Yeah, no, there's a lot of correspondence for sure. There's a lot of overlap, especially, I mean, it, it's funny because like our immediate neighbors spatially, like, you know, on one side, 
we have the uh, like Norway's contribution and, mm-hmm. and their work is with also with softwood and uh, more like a configurable interior and how that relates to, to community life and maybe could can open up some different different ways of for people to live together and and form their like environments together and then just uh, like kind of across diagonally in front of us is the is the finished pavilion and they are looking at a uh prefabricated wood housing system from the 1940s and 50s um also soft wood also looking at you know what part of that was designed what part of it was then later uh changed by the people who lived in the houses and you know like how did they customize them and really you know the 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 differentiation of these houses that were all identical to start with like how that became you know a project of the people who lived in them and so yeah, it's very interesting, like the issues of authorship and and materials and, you know, the you know, have have, uh, have been uh, it's, it's, we've we've talked with them and it's it's been a good exchange of ideas for sure. Yeah. One thing I, we've explored in kind of some of our other podcasts or just interviews is just, you know, the sustainability aspect of it. Is it is it not? But one thing and why I asked about the reuse is that I find very um Kind of beautiful about it and maybe this is also something that's uniquely american of just the as wood ages it really becomes more valuable you know you see these like places where they especially in the midwest where they salvage barns and you know people come and, and buy that wood because it has this just textual quality so i think hmm. um i don't know if you have anything to add to that but it's one part i really love about uh, particular wood structures they think uh, there is the kind of patina of wood that people appreciate, and especially with the kind of, you know, old growth forest woods like oaks and chestnuts and, and things, like you get that a little bit better. Um, what's interesting, I guess, about the softwoods like spruces and, and Douglas firs that are used in in the stick construction or, or American framing is that the trees go really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can kind of sustainably manage forests and and while you're while you're producing the material for the houses you're also growing trees which has a kind of additional benefit uh so it's not as kind of deleterious to the environment as using say hardwoods which take you know half half a century to kind of grow uh and take much longer so it can actually keep up with the kind of domestic need uh in ways that other materials can't is there anything you hope to influence with your installation? The influence might be, a, I don't know if I'd put it in those terms. I don't think we have ambitions to, uh, but we, to, to influence anybody in any particular way. But we definitely thought of it as a project of opening up a topic, you know, trying to, trying to look at it a little bit more closely and give a thoughtful presentation of the, of the subject matter to other architects and to, you know, people in general, to, you know, whoever... Uh, you know, is the audience of, of the Biennale, whoever comes, any visitor. Um, you know, like for us, the, this is like, you know, we're, we're, I guess we're trying to make a case for the field to take a closer look. And we think that there's, you know, some interesting work could come out of it and hopefully it will. Um, but, you know, if, if and how that happens is, you know, out of our hands now, we've yeah. We put it out there and hopefully some people pick it up and do something with it. And, and you know, that there's, yeah, that it, it um, yeah, it's provocative for some people in terms of like their ideas and questions about how to work. Yeah, for, for me, I guess um, 
you know, also maybe in, influence isn't the right uh, word, but, but alert uh, people or kind of make visible an understanding. I think what we wanted with the, the installation in the front is, is we kind of think of it more as an addition to the existing US pavilion from 1930. So it kind of literally completes it in the sense that it produces a formalized courtyard space, a kind of protected courtyard space, you know, a private social space on the interior. And then metaphorically, it also kind of joins the early 20th century cultural aspirations of the United States, like made visible through this kind of adoption of European Palladianism in the way of the structure, and then completing it with the most ubiquitous form of domestic structure. And so it works for us more like a completion to the building uh, and a way to kind of alert you to, to what's at stake and the consequences of the exhibition to see something that is both kind of monumental and anti-monumental simultaneously and that there's nothing special about it, but it's like nothing you've ever seen. And that in a way, you know, I guess conditions you to what's at stake and allows you to then explore the interior of the galleries and the exhibition where we start to look at both the kind of traditions of the history, the way it was packaged as either kit homes, the kind of details of the site, the kind of messiness of the very temporal construction process that, you know, only takes a, a number of weeks to go from no framed house to a fully framed house to explore the kind of natures of labor and the kind of social aspects of labor, the precarious parts of undocumented workers and day laborers uh, to the more professionalized labor that you have with union carpentry. And then to kind of get into the myths and the origin stories of trees and texture and you know seeing the trees for the forest instead of the forest for the trees. And to explore this also through, we have a set of models uh, that kind of track the history and explore different types of housing from the kind of euphoric and utopic conditions of countercultural developments in Colorado to the more brutal, uh, oppressive instances of the architecture being used for the more unkind reasons like US military outposts in the Midwest to, to kind of really explore the periphery and the margins as a way of getting a deeper understanding of, of what's at stake with architecture in general. So for us, I think the show was always meant to be, and I think is a, about architecture, not architects. Uh, and in a way that also might be how we respond to how we live together, because it's about a, a kind of social project that architecture participates in. What do you feel will define our generation architecturally? I mean, that's hard to say. I, I, I know we're currently, I mean, this isn't new. This is this has been for a while, but it seems to have stuck like pretty hard. I think there's a strong backlash against signature. You know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's clear that, yeah, I mean, no matter what your, pro your project is, what your ambitions are, like very, you know, very few people are invested in you know, like, you know, signature form or signature, uh, you know, at, at like a signature sensibility um, in their, in their works. And I don't know, maybe that's what it'll be in the end, but, yeah, it's it's always. I mean, in the moment, it's pretty hard to pretty hard to say. I think Paul's right in the sense that there is a you know there's one thread that's a kind of backlash against more exotic works, uh, but but it seems like we're also just kind of caught in a moment where nobody knows what is good or nobody knows what to do, and there's a lot of kind of competing interests and competing inquiries into both what's possible and what we should do. Uh, and it's difficult. I think like architecture, unlike art and unlike other forms of 
creative practices uh, is, is a much more compromised field and that even cheap architecture isn't really cheap in absolute terms. Um, and so, you know, like I, I think people struggle with what, what architecture is supposed to mean and do and who it's supposed to be for and who it's supposed to represent uh, and how it's used as kind of symbols of power or oppression or how it's used as things that are inviting to kind of develop new social spaces or conceptual spaces for people. So, you know, I don't know what this generation or the next one will, will do for architecture. I don't think uh, it'll be defined in terms of a, of a formal style. Um, but I don't think it will be anti-formal in that sense either, where it just dematerializes into things that aren't architecture, that are actually more policy-driven or something like that. So right now is kind of, I don't know, I think really interesting for me because it feels uh, like we're trying to figure these things out and wrestle with our own histories and what a uh, future could be uh, and how architecture can produce and condition that and be conditioned by it. Previous Resite speaker and Venice Biennale exhibitor Lucas Fireis collaborated with architect Leopold Bonchini to create an installation entitled There Are Walls That Want to Prowl that was featured in this year's exhibitor hall in the Arsenale. The project accompanies the retrospective Shelter Cookbook, a homage to Lloyd Kahn. The pair describe him as not just a publisher whose texts have inspired them deeply, but a pioneer who shaped the green self-build movement in the U.S. and beyond like no other. Lucas and Leopold stress how Kahn's texts were revolutionary, launching a counterculture movement focused on degrowth. These alternatives to conventional forms of building and living together have deeply influenced Leopold's practice. They emphasize the conscious, connected, and liberated way of life, citing that Kahn's work was not necessarily about the use of wood in his building, but the use of local resources. In Shelter Cookbook, Lucas juxtaposes his building practices with the curated section of mycology, serving as a symbolic metaphor for our own entangled existence. We caught up with Lucas and Leopold in the gardens of the Arsenale to discuss how their definitions of shelter, application of wood structures, degrowth models, and retrospectives to rethink how we will live together. My name is Lucas Feiras. I'm a Berlin-based uh, curator and writer uh, at the intersection of arts, architecture, and design, both theory and practice. Next to me is uh, Leopold Bankini. I'm Leopold Bankini, and I'm an architect based in Switzerland at the moment, and uh, we collaborated together on this installation. Uh, shelter to me personally means home and shelter to me personally means a safe place and a safe space. I think very, uh, very similar, but uh, for those who don't know, it's also the name of a book that was very inspiring to us uh, by Lloyd Kahn, uh, who called the book this way. I think not necessarily referring to emergency shelter, but rather to the idea of the shelter as a self built place uh, where you could live in and as he said you know make a family develop make love heal etc the uh, um, the book that uh, the publication that uh, leopold just referenced shelter by lloyd khan is very much on self-building practices and they are mostly with wood um, 
So this is something I guess that Liebe can, can talk more about, but uh, there's a, a concept of like lightweight construction and local material that seems to us still like very um, appealing as, as a, a way of working and of, of building um, yeah, your own environment, your own house, your own shelter. Yeah, I think in the case of the book Shelter, it actually uh, speaks about a lot of different construction material. It focuses on wood because Lloyd was living in Northern California where there's clearly a very strong wood presence. And it was in this area probably the easiest way to build for someone who doesn't have the experience uh, of a builder. Um, I don't think that he was specifically and or only interested in wood, but uh, of course we all know that wood is a very easy material for non-professional. Uh, it's an easy material to start and it's a very, as Lucas says, very lightweight material. Uh, I think for me the degrowth model and probably from what we understand from Loikan, once again it's not linked directly to wood, it's rather linked to local resources, uh, to a certain economy and uh, economy of means and economy in terms of material. So I think wood is only one technique that comes out of it. Um, what I think we see today is uh, wood is just uh, another you know, large scale material produced all around the world which falls under uh, the category of all highly processed materials. So I would not say that today wood is necessarily an ecological material. I think this is probably a misconception. Uh, but it is still a very sustainable material if it's used in the right way and locally and, uh, of course, uh, with attention and, and care. And with regards to the degrowth, maybe what we um, were attracted by or are attracted by is this kind of more organic and holistic look at um, the man-made environments. We, um, we really like the curatorial question. But it's one that's directed to the future. How will we live together? And uh, our approach was, well, in order to answer that question, maybe we have to look at models of the past or question like preconceived ideas of how we can live together and, and, and learn from examples that still inspire. Hence, we, we yeah, very deliberately said uh, we're not going to talk about our own practice, but look at ideas that were thought of half a century ago and are still relevant. What I find very inspiring in the book uh, of Lloyd Kahn is that, first of all, they were extremely avant-garde at the time and they were proposing uh, highly different models that were not only about a way of building architecture, but really about a way of living and a new relation with the environment, with the economy and between people. And I think for me, that's still extremely inspiring about this period in the 60s and 70s that we are specifically focused about. Uh, still today, in, in my opinion, the answer have to come rather from that side rather than from highly te technological uh, answer that might save us. I, I still believe that degrowth is uh, an interesting model and that probably the way out of the crisis we're into and it's only going to get worse in the future, I believe, if we don't find new models. The publications that we're talking about, um, they were published in the late 60s, early 70s. So this is actually the time of space exploration and even the cover um, of one of the magazines that Lloyd was co-editor of the whole Earth Catalog has this famous history that on the front cover of the whole Earth Catalog you saw the very first time that humanity saw the Earth as a planet on one as a picture, um, and this could, this was um, from the Apollo missions. So this connects my moon interest now, same year back to the whole Earth Catalog, back to Lloyd Kahn, back to Shelter, back to the Biennale 2021.
tucked away in the Salle d'Armi of the Arsenale lies the Luxembourg Pavilion. The installation, designed by Studio SNCDA, addresses the housing crisis in a local context. Entitled Homes for Luxembourg, she explores module, reversible, wood-based designs, ideal for a country whose land prices render housing unaffordable and out of reach for much of the population. The installation is an exemplary modular unit, different from a manufactured home or a tiny house model, but instead reimagines a temporary housing scheme to mitigate undeveloped land and privatization challenges. Their minimal design paired with customizable units that fit together in a generous amount of combinations allow for flexibility while keeping costs relatively low. The architect and curator behind the project. Sarah Noel Costa de Arrojo. My office is called Studio SNCDA, and I'm the curator, but also the architect of this uh, housing project. The pavilion is called Homes for Luxembourg because there's a housing crisis in Luxembourg, which is due to the price of the ground, which is uh, very expensive, so people can't really afford to build any more house. And our proposal is to take away that factor just to rent the, the, the land, the ground, for 5, 10, or 15 years, according to the, yeah, the agreement we ha you have with, with the owner, and then to have a mobile, flexible house that you put on it. And then once, you're, it's, uh, once it's over, then you take your model, your 3 by, uh, 3.6 by 3.6 by 3.9 high module, and you dismantle it, and then you rebuild it somewhere else. But the idea is also, because it's mobile, it's temporary, so you don't really touch the ground, you don't make a whole foundation, um, foundation work, so you just put it delicately on the ground, you put all the surveys underneath, not, not surveys, the canalizations. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, and voila. And uh, it's really about the respect that you have for the land, so you don't have to destroy everything, you can just like, put yourself on what is there. And uh, one other issue which interests me really in the project is as you don't, the land doesn't belong to you, um, you don't start to put on fences. So if you have a bigger terrain where you have three, four houses, you have to negotiate the relationship with your neighbors. And that's why we introduced some kind of like common elements. You have a common oven, you can have a common kitchen, you can really create, build a piece of city on the terrain. And uh, for Luxembourg, it's very important because the city center, it's quite empty. So I think it would be interesting to find solutions that people live again in that city, which is actually very nice. <laughs> how do you feel like this interprets the question, how will we live together? How will we live together? But in Luxembourg, it's very specific. It's how will we live together in the city? Will we continue just to, um, yeah, to get, uh, yeah, to, to live in the format that is preconceived for you? Or do you try to... Uh, to reconstruct also relationships. It's, it's really about relationships and how do you live together in a city. So uh, I think it's very important. And I think this is a kind of like very small, how do you say, very small thing, but which can change, can, can have a very big impact in a very small city. Yeah, and it's a collaborative project, which is also very important. So you can lift, how will you lift again? Mm -hmm. How do you think the city or the house mm -hmm. together? So I invited an artist, Konrad Dobeler, a textile designer, Esther Goris, and a researcher, Arno uh, Hendricks. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking the project together, but you see very clearly, everybody sees the, has specificities, like Konrad really looks into the detail, Esther, yeah, she really works with the fabric, and uh, yeah, Arno is a structural lover. So 
you have it's a common project but where you see the specificities and the characters of everybody still Our last guest of this episode encapsulates the final phase in crafting a livable space by examining how much wood structures are used and lived in through a radical approach. I spoke with the exhibitors of the Nordic Pavilion. Siv Helen Stranglen and Reinhard Krupp founded architecture firm Helen & Hard, as well as collective living development Vin Mollenbacke, a co-living experiment in Stavanger, Norway, which they not only designed but also occupy along with 65 other tenants. Here, residents share facilities, spaces, and resources, along with a local democracy based on collective participation. Individual needs are addressed with fully equipped private apartments. The installation itself, entitled What We Share, illustrates how architects can design more than just physical spaces, but build communities, something they hold a strong conviction for, that co-housing can resolve a number of issues, like loneliness, overconsumption, and waste of resources, all while increasing housing security and quality of life. It is a full-scale model of co-housing, complete with fluid spaces that flow effortlessly from one to another, an architecture that plays off the pavilion's existing structure. In addition to the cooperative nature of co-housing, the model embodies democracy in its design, allowing residents to participate directly through the malleability of the space itself. I spoke with Siv and Reinhardt following our trip to Venice. I'm um, Siv Helen-Stangland. I'm a partner and founder as well, together with Reinhardt, of Helen and Hard architecture firm. Um, yeah, uh, we can talk about the firm later maybe, but that's my very short introduction. Uh, my name is Reinhard Kropf. I'm originally from Austria, but have lived in Norway the last um, 25 years. Uh, and co-founder of Helen and Hart together with Sief uh, and uh, studied in Austria in the Technical University in Graz and in Oslo at the uh, architect architectural uh, school. School. That's yeah. where we met, in fact. Really? <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. So I, I would definitely love to hear more about that. I just thought we'd start by talking about your exhibition and how it tackles the question of how we will live together. Yeah, we um, we try to um, connect to the theme quite um, literally and direct by um, um, uh, by designing a, a full-scale installation of a cross-section of a co-housing project. Um, and... Um, we wanted to explore a new model for co-housing, which is based on the Scandinavian um, co-housing model, but also on, uh, based on our experiences of a co-housing project we did in, in Norway. And uh, we wanted to explore how um, this uh, model can be um, expanded and um, how inhabitants can um, share more and also thereby create a common space and shared layers outside of their private units. So that was the experiment. And we involved um, eight inhabitants of this uh, project we, we did in, in Norway uh, and co-created this um, installation together with them. 
Yes, and I think what it contributes with in relation to the topic of how will we live together is maybe also to speculate a little bit in the future uh, because co-housing is a, is a very trendy theme and you find it in, in, in a lot of different variations at the moment. Um, and what we wanted to also um, emphasize is that the, there can be an architecture that support it and that we can maybe also ask Ask, ask these questions, are we willing to share even more? Can we make our own private unit more compact? And, and what do you need then, if, if so? so? And how can architecture provide a kind of supportive platform for sharing and having more communal life um, together? So in the installation, we have a, a common space in the middle, then we have the private units and then a shared layer in between the two where the inhabitants can uh, share uh, certain um, activities and, and installations uh, with, with the other inhabitants. And we wanted to explore how this um, social idea of social sustainability can come together with the material sustainability. So uh, an important part of the installation is also to invent a new timber system that uh, consists of uh, solid wood planks and uh, they are connected with towels and uh, they are environmentally friendly but also suitable for self-building so the inhabitants can uh, design and build the furniture and, and, and elements by themselves but also the walls and ceilings are built of the system and that system can be very easily locally produced so it's not a include uh, industrial system, but a very low-tech, um, yeah, environmentally friendly um, log system. Wow. So would inhabitants have the chance to sort of, um, like, really have their hands on, on creating part of the architecture of the space? That's, uh, that's what we have kind of speculated in, that uh, this system is so simple that you can, in fact, build yourself. Uh, but what we have shown in the in the installation is that it's also possible to build quite complex structures, and you can make multifunctional furnitures that really can handle a lot of different usages. Uh, so it can be very simple, like a shelf, but it can also be a kind of stair with a playing uh, sports facility integrated to it. So we try to to show a kind of span of what this system can can be. Your full-scale model is like a timber continuation also of the pavilion's architecture in itself. Can you talk a little bit about that and the aesthetic choice? Yeah. Yeah. We of course this pavilion is is gorgeous and beautiful. So <laughs> we we wanted to create an installation that really go, goes into a dialogue with the pavilion and to keep like a landscape like lower installation that connects to the ground and is built in timber in contrast to this uh, concrete structure and this incredible beautiful roof with the brisole uh, and the special light to keep that perfectly intact. So the dialogue between this landscape and the roof was important for us. And that the common space is organized around these uh, three uh, uh, fantastic trees in the pavilion. So there is, a, there is of course a kind of tension between this sublime space of Sverafen, which is so pure and light and yeah, you, you don't want to do anything in there, nearly. And then our intention to expose uh, everyday life in a co-housing project. So 
this was a kind of creative gap that also was kind of um, with us, uh, how, how to do that, how to kind of work site specifically and at the same time take with us all these ideas of a, of a yeah of a co-housing project which doesn't have anything to do with, <laughs> with this pavilion so yeah and, and I think the key was when we when we started to work with this building system of shelves which mm -hmm. has kind of structural um, dialogue in it to with the the, the ribs of Sverafen, so it, it started to be also something that could play together. Really beautiful how it all was just like so fluid together, and you really capture that feeling. I think that you were trying to achieve. So well done. Also with that in the exhibition, there were several of the installations or kind of centers you had created, um, kind of focused on crafts and in particular textile crafts of like knitting and sewing. Um, was there a particular reason behind that choice? Well, we have uh, we have chosen some of the uh, inhabitants that that are residents in the co-housing where we also self we are living there ourselves, so we know them. Oh, <laughs> and of course, it was important to sh to kind of choose a, a variation of people. So you have this old lady that really owe a loom, and and she's very dedicated to it. So it's, and then you have some other girls that are always repairing things and knitting things. So it's, it's brought in through, through our friends in the co-housing projects and, and exposed there as an example of what you can do together. And also these different scenes that we have kind of built there, we didn't want to, to, to kind of inhabit and um, refurbish the whole pavilion. We have only kind of insinuated that it can be inhabited in, in different ways. So there are five different scenes. And one of the scenes is, is together with this loom and, and the knitting, uh, sewing, repairing <laughs> corner. Um, so it, it's, yeah, it's, it's chosen because it's, something that we live uh, and an experience where we are today it's maybe more showing that together sharing such a facilitation as a loom would be or or a sewing machine or or different ways to repair things it's also something that you easier would be uh, encouraged or inspired to do together and our experience in the co-housing project in Windmöllebakken in Norway is that, uh, you know, this there are self-organized groups that uh, produce uh, furniture or that produce the, the cushions or harvesting or, or, yeah. or growing things and making food. So these things are um, the communal, they're kind of fragments of the communal life and and we think that this is, has also an architectonic consequence and the potential which we wanted to, to show. We didn't want to show only a clean timber structure. We wanted to, to show it also inhabited. You took my next question. I, I wanted to ask you kind of more about your experience with co-housing. I knew you had created this really incredible compound um, that you were just discussing, but I didn't realize you actually lived there. So... Would you care to share a little bit more about it? I, I think that really adds kind of a special layer that really this came from personal experience and how you really just made that tangible. Yeah, um, it's a long story because, um, in fact, this co-housing in Vinmalubakin in Stavanger, where we live, uh, we started to develop that in 2011 or so it has taken some years <laughs> and the first um, we did was in fact to study different co-housing projects in Scandinavia and see 
how how could we bring together a, a model that is uh, suitable and, and contemporary and 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 but still built on this Nordic um, tradition? Um, so Windmelbakken is a pilot of a model that we have tried to define, and now we are in fact working on five different or five new ones. So it's kind of growing. But um, this special co-hosting we worked a lot on <laughs> because it's it's strange how how just to in, engage the users earlier in the process is is radically new or radically different to a normal housing industry um, and how that is is arranged. So we had to really invent both um, these processes, how, how can we engage the user early on and still uh, be on the commercial market. People, this was not a group of people that knew each other, so it's 67 people coming together and, and we have to provide and facilitate also how they can get to know each other, what are the values that can, can serve as a kind of guiding um, intention for, for creating a communal life, um, how can we also control this user participation so that it doesn't go completely out of control in terms of time and, 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 and resources. So there was a lot of inventions to, to make this work. And together with also the, 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 the way we have built it and the spatial organization, which is special because of the integrated shared space uh, in Vinmalbakken, there is in fact 500 square meter with the common space. Um, with all different kind of, of programs. Mm. So, so with, uh, what um, I just try to build a bit on, uh, there are different elements which has to come together. The one is the social structure and the, the process to work together and to live together. That has to be crafted. And as importantly, the architectonic space with the common spaces in the middle and the apartments around, uh, and then also to create a, a building system that allows this adaptability and change and growth, but then also a parametric um, design that, that can handle uh, participatory processes and changes in a, and makes it still affordable. So these different elements we wanted to bring together in this model and show in the Venice Biennale also as a potential for further development. Since you, you've lived in there and this has been an ongoing project for, for quite some time, what are some of the, the lessons maybe that you've learned of how to make co-housing more as harmonious as possible that maybe is reflected in the architecture? Is there anything like specific that you've learned or that um, you've evolved with, let's say? Good question. It I think there, it's on many levels we learn things, but... Um, First of all, maybe that today people are very uh, occupied with having their choice. So, so this that we can both organize it spatially so that you are not forced to always go through the the very central shared areas. You can you can sneak up to your own apartment without dealing with everyone. Um, also, that you're having a unit which is fully equipped, so you're not forced to use the common kitchen or, or the shared area. So it's it's based on on having this individual choice, which is very important for people. Then we also learned to looking into different co-housing projects 
that variation of age and life situation that really wanted to, to have a mix of people. And this is really showing itself as, as a very kind of basic when it comes to having a rich life. People can contribute with different resources. Um, they are... They have different time. You have pensionists that, that are here during the day. They can cook. They have time for administration, but while others are really busy. And, and so we, we can kind of support each other because we are in different rhythms and have different everyday lives. So that's something we learned and to, to really be yeah, true to that. And also that, that we can, through co-housing, uh, it's possible to offer more generous uh, spaces Because the apartments are a bit more compact, so you can you you can share this uh, very central uh, general spaces, and that's also important how they are located in the building. We learned that it's maybe um, interesting to have that more really like a central space and the apartments around, and not only in the ground floor or somewhere else in the building. So so all that has an, a, a very strong architectonic uh, influence, and we think that's for us as architects, really very, very in interesting. And also the participation of the inhabitants, how that really influences the architecture, and the, especially the common spaces. So that, that also can give a new expression or a new uh, vernacular by uh, sharing um, or co-creating the design of the common spaces and also the programming, of course. Mm. And, and I think... Yeah, you, you're also asking into, uh, that's something many people ask about is, is of course, how, how is it to live together and solve the, the challenges that, that comes? And of course, there is also a challenge uh, to find out how we can agree about things when we are so many people. Uh, so, so of course, there is a, is a kind of learning in how to have good consensus processes uh, <laughs> so that we can, we can all the time find solutions that we are able to live with. Of course, we are not completely always happy with, with uh, decisions, but decision-making processes is a key and good decision-making process, decision processes that are good facilitated, as something we have learned, and that it takes time. Um, people are we need to engage to, to make it work so so there but that's another part we can talk a lot about is is kind of how are you living together when it's done and everything is is kind of um, built uh, you move in and then there is this um, getting to know each other uh, for real and also finding out how to solve um, that uh, yeah this basic thing that we owe so much together and we have to find out how to, to deal with that. So there is, this, there is a continuous negotiation between us. How are we going to use this space, for example, or are we going to invest in this or that? Uh, I mean, these daily things uh, going on all the time. I can imagine, but that's, that's <laughs> fascinating and I think that's beautiful. Do you feel that there will be a demand for more co-housing in the future or do you see it as something that's more experimental? So what, what do you feel like the future of it is? The whole aim for us was that this is not like a niche product, but that is really suitable to grow and expand and scale. And the, what is we definitely think that this uh, will be a future in the, in the housing market because uh, loneliness and segregation are real health problems, in, especially in Scandinavia. And uh, co-housing can be really given, uh, give a good contribution and an answer to that problem. So I think that's something which, um, which will grow and will, is a, there is a, a huge demand in the market. 
But I think also it's important to see if, if this could also be a potential that inhabitants are getting more shareholders again of, uh, of the housing market. So that the housing market is not only in the hands of uh, developers and general contractors, but that this model, co-housing model, could help to to make um, a more, um, yeah, uh, create a ownership and create a more participation and a more democratic development of our cities. And and I think that that's a, a really interesting perspective of this model. Because yeah, it it has in fact scale, which is intriguing because it it. It makes, I, I just see it here where we are, 67 people. People are so much more engaged in their neighborhood, not only the neighborhood that we owe together, but it's it's like this intermediate space between the private and the very public is suddenly enhanced and getting a platform for creativity and engagement. And I think that's so vital for <laughs> good cities so, so it, it is, in fact, also um, a model that that support a good city life in general. And of course, we we should also see it in the, in a relation to. Um, I mean, we have just survived the pandemic uh, situation, and everyone was very, very, very curious to see how that would function. Yeah. <laughs> but now it has also proven to work, uh, and that is because, of course, there is an organization and there there is coordination. Uh, in in this system that we are caring for together, so we can handle it. Uh, there is a group then that takes care of how can we deal with social restrictions and still keep on having a social life, but of course um, keeping safe safety regards. So we have experienced kind of wonderful times also in this uh, very problematic times because uh, because we could handle it and we could go on also to see each other and support each other in a difficult period. That's so important and that's really good to hear. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that experience and how you were able to manage it? Yeah, yeah. First of all, what makes it possible is that we have this buffer space. So we have space outside our small apartments where it's possible to meet more people and you can keep two meters distance <laughs> so that in itself is is um is a kind of basic and then i think it's important that we are organized and coordinated as i said so if something is decided everyone has also feel responsibility to to keep it and follow it and, and care for what is decided. Yeah, and, and what was um, the experience was that it was really also a, a wish to have a social life. And we became quite creative. Uh, we were mm. singing together from our balconies, <laughs> inspired from Italy. Mm. And uh, we had concerts for artists because they had really a tough time in the period. Mm. All that was possible. And we had uh, uh, dinners with uh, restricted amount of people so spreading around the whole yeah. house so it was a lot going on and and i think we had a better time than if we would have lived in a conventional housing project where mm -hmm. you're just isolated that sounds incredible and kind of a, a bright spot in all of this maybe one last question I, I kind of wanted to just hear more about you know how how you got to this point how you got interested in co-housing and how you got started in your partnership as architects first about the co-housing um we have designed um, housing projects uh, now 20 years and uh, we really think that's important for architects to try to, to do it because it's such an important task. But we also experienced that um, there is a systemic challenge in the housing market, that uh, there are certain 
agents and interests involved that are maybe not always um, going so well together. So you have this typical coordination problems that there are houses house built, but no one is really happy with the result, but no one knows how to solve it, really. And you, uh, you would need to screw different screws simultaneously to really change the entire system. So um, in 2012, we started this company gaining by sharing, and we thought maybe we, we have to change something really from the beginning on, as the premises of housing design and housing production, uh, and change some of the systemic um, relations. And that that made us think to uh, relate to this uh, Scandinavian model of uh, co-housing, where inhabitants are shareholders, and also uh, develop it further with the participatory processes and uh, with the way to build and an architecture. So it was really um, motivated to um, not only take a commission as an architect, but maybe uh, expand our role as an architect also and try to change some of the premises that define a, a typical commission. And uh, we think there's still a lot uh, to learn and a lot uh, possibilities. And I think that's an incredibly interesting future for the for our profession. And, and it's a bit maybe also our history of Helen and Hart that in Helen and Hart that we wanted always to, to see how we can create an, another context for architecture. And so, also also to create a sustainable answers, we have to we have to change systems and then thereby we also often have to take other roles and try to find new grounds for for, for changing things on the on the principal level and that's what we did with this gaining by sharing company which um, which was very new for us to 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 engage in also try to define another economy also in in relation to uh, to housing uh, and how, how could we build a model that, that really support people in living more sustainable? That was our kind of vision for this project. Uh, and, the, and we thought if we can provide houses that are compact, so you, see, you don't buy more square meter, but we just kind of rearrange the square meters a little bit more, no, less in your private and the rest you put in together and then thereby you get a lot more. So that was the gaining by sharing <laughs> uh, principle. And and so it's really yeah we really try to uh, redefine these these premises for housing um, both spatially but also how we organize the processes how the user is is, is also invited with and and material wise yeah. because um, uh, when we work with general larger housing projects you have general contractors and they are often coming from the concrete industry they they want to build in concrete. It's, it's difficult to build with sustainable or environmentally friendly materials with that kind of system. So to really, that's why we, uh, 15 years ago, really tried to specialize on timber architecture and find out how to, uh, how can you build housing projects, offices, uh, normal buildings in timber with the same cost and uh, create an alternative. And uh, of course, Scandinavia has a history with timber architecture but it is nearly forgotten. So it was a, a really a, a long learning process for us. But now suddenly this really changes. And we, we experience now that the market is really, uh, they're, they're popping up more and more timber buildings and, uh, and also customers want to live in timber buildings. Mm. So that's an amazing um, shift and it happened very, very fast. You see in the Venice Biennale also a lot of contributions that deal with, with timber, yeah. which I think is, is a proof also that this is uh, incredible in our time now, that uh, that concrete and steel are really uh, the materials of the 
classical modern area and and timber uh, is the material of of our time which has to be more sustainable and environmentally friendly do you think it's possible that timber really becomes kind of like the next mark of a generation of architects of architecture because i've I've also seen that and we've had you know i noticed that the biennale and then we've had um, quite a few guests on kind of about that so yeah yeah Mm. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we think so. I think that there will come a new generation of uh, architects and engineers that really built even more in timber. And uh, and we, we are really happy that we could uh, contribute quite early also to this development because it's, um, it's, it's just uh, not only to design buildings, it's also to have a whole value chain that in fact can conceptualize and plan and build and produce timber okay. architecture mm. and that uh, takes its time but uh, it's on a good in a, it's on a way and uh, you see it in in different regions in the alp region in um, switzerland austria and south germany you see it in canada mm. you see it uh, in parts of uh, east europe in italy mm. and that's fantastic and it, i think it will just take place in uh, regions where you have forest uh, and that it will expand and it will change the architecture. Absolutely. And that's good news, I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, mm. thank you so much. Um, that's all the questions I have, but is there anything you feel like we missed or you would like to discuss that adds to you know your practice or the exhibition itself? There's something uh, Steve and I discussed quite a lot is, is this uh, what we think is really interesting also in the in the context of sustainability is how architects um, can really combine with architecture and uh, weave together different disciplines and different knowledge fields and different cultures. And I think that that kind of aspect of our profession, that we are generalists and we are not specialists, we are is, is something which maybe um, gains on importance. And this systemic approach towards Architecture and sustainability, I think, is really something which is is very important, and it's it's interesting to see in the Biennale also that that has been an important theme in different contributions in, the, in different pavilions. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we think it's so important that you have uh, we have um, also um, media like this podcast <laughs> that that yeah that make it possible to 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 expand the discourse and 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 talk about it because it's we are so often trapped in simplifying the message uh, which doesn't really give um, honor to our profession and and uh, and architecture is always complex and it's holistic mm-hmm. in its uh, base and especially so if it's going going to uh, bring us further into sustainable uh, solutions it is we have to work holistically and be able also to talk about it in, in holistic ways i agree and i'm really grateful that you came on and shared all that with us it's an honor for us to be that platform and that's that is our goal with it so thank you so much thank you thank you alexander for inviting us Paul, Lucas and Leopold, Sarah, Reinhardt, and Siv all speak about the ubiquity and accessibility of wood, but also its application as something novel, modern even, while acknowledging its historical, humble application that feels timeless. 
Wood, both ubiquitous and democratic, doesn't require experienced builders to use. Its ecological aspect and multifunctionality as a building material is at once, again, engaging and framing of one's life. It allows the user to partake in the physical, spatial framing of their residential life. To once express individuality, as in with the U.S. Pavilion, while offering a possibility for fluid communal co-living spaces, as with the Nordic. Binding them both like the sinewy fibers of timber, it is a material of a layman. The follow-up of this episode will feature a special interview between the curator of Venice Biennale, architect Hashim Sarkis, in conversation with Resite's own former curator, Greg Lindsay. We will then continue to explore this year's question, how will we live together, but through the lens of accessibility with the curators of the Austrian and British pavilions. I wanted to thank you so much for tuning in and for taking this journey with us as we navigate building a podcast amidst of a pandemic. After the second Biennale episode, we will be taking a break for the summer months and returning in autumn 2021, the bigger, better, and longer season three. We've loved getting to create this podcast and we hope you've been enjoying it just as much. Reaching a new audience on a new platform with the same mission Elevating people and ideas to improve the urban environment in the middle of a pandemic has been what we feel to be an important action. Also important to us is that these ideas remain accessible and free. As a nonprofit, we are only able to produce this podcast thanks to the generous support of the City of Prague, the Czech Ministry of Culture, corporate sponsors, private philanthropists, and our network of passionate architecture and city lovers like you. If you would like to support us as a patron, sponsor, or strategic partner, please get in touch with us at podcast at recite.org. Your support allows us to continue sharing ideas to inspire more livable, lovable cities. Design in the City is a Recite production, and Recite is a global nonprofit connecting people and ideas to improve the urban environment. This episode was directed and produced by myself, Alexandra Siebenthal, Radka Andrzejczkova, and Nicholas Sellers, with support from Martin Berry, Anastava, as well as Nano Energies and the Czech Ministry of Culture. It was edited and recorded by Little Big Studio. Mm-hmm.